0: This is the Black Artist Project, an interview format podcast that delivers content on contemporary Black art history and visual culture, specifically focusing on Black artists across artistic disciplines with active practices in Rhode Island. This activity is made possible in part by a grant from the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts through an appropriation by the Rhode Island General Assembly and a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Kai Soares Cobb is a Cape Verdean American artist and healer whose practice is oriented to finding harmony and rhythm with the forces and beings of the natural world. Here is our conversation. So thank you for being part of Black Artist Podcast. It's great to have you I hear.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So tell us where you're coming from.
1: So I am uh, presently in Providence, Rhode Island, Narragansett Territory. And uh, yeah, I was born and raised in a little further south down 95, a little city called Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, My father's family's been in and around Connecticut, upstate New York for some generations. My mother came from uh, Cape Verde, the island of San Nicolau, off the west coast of Africa. And uh, yeah, I've been in Providence for about 11 years now.
0: So tell us, when did you know you wanted to be an artist? Was there a particular moment for you?
1: You know, it's an interesting question. You know, I don't think there was ever a moment in my childhood where I was like, not already involved in the art making, as I think most children are, you know, we're sort of brought into the process of being creative as a part of um, kind of standard childhood education. But I think for me, I just never, I never stopped being interested in creating or never stopped being interested in creators. And so I think for me, the first thing that really captured my attention was music videos, you know, being being on the inside of music videos. And then I remember the first music video that I seen that made me want to make a music video was Busta Rhymes' Put Your Hands Where My Eyes Could See. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just like the dopest thing I had ever like witnessed at that point in time. It just stretched my imagination so far. And so I think that's when I kind of started playing around in kind of a multimedia like relationship to sound making and um, visuals and really thinking about like, how to create a space for performance or a space for being embodied.
0: So you studied music technology and now with Busta Rhymes becoming a clear influence, I can see why that was, you know, an interest of yours. But at Northeastern University, you sort of merged those two fields. And so what was it like to study both?
1: So when I went to Northeastern studying music technology, at the time I was making beats. You know, I was making beats for rappers and singers and doing that in high school. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to be a producer. So. You know, Northeastern had a music technology program, music in the music industry program. And I was kind of inside of that, which I'm grateful for because, you know, I learned how to plug in wires and (laughs) run a soundboard, you know, which are um, skills that I find useful to this day. But essentially, you know, like I was I was kind of let down, I think, by the by the state of being of like yeah, like arts education and that type of university. It's really a business oriented school and even Boston just sort of feels like a business oriented place. So that that kind of drop off just kind of like led me into more esoteric investigations at that time. Um, That's kind of when I became interested in philosophy. And really I was also not a good philosophy student because uh, I wasn't interested in debating. I was interested in asking questions.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, what kind of questions were you asking yourself? Like, can you give us a just like
1: yeah, yeah, just like why are we here? You know, like oh, the, um, the
0: big like, ones, the existential. Yeah,
1: ones. the big. <laughs> yeah, the yeah the big existential crises. You know, and I was involved also with um, kind of the uh, the African American Institute. At Northeastern, which is a is is a historical institute. I think one of the first ones, if not the if not the first, African American institute in a private university in the country. And so there was just, yeah, some incredible professors up there who were sort of antagonizing this idea of, you know, what does it mean to be black in America? And at the same time, there were a lot of people at Northeastern and in Boston. Who were coming from many other Black countries, throughout the Caribbean, throughout Africa, and so these these like different trains of thought about blackness were sort of coming together in this African American Institute. While at the same time, I was studying Plato <laughs> and like Aristotle, and uh, you know Nietzsche, and you know these Western philosophers, and so yeah, these these uh, these questions really started to merge for me um, and that's kind of like what really became my, my focus in my later years in school.
0: So chart a course for us. You're in Boston, you're a student, you're finding yourself a, amongst a lot of African diasporic people talking about philosophy. So then how do you make your way to Providence? And there's a big Cape Verde community in Providence, so I imagine it was sort of like a homecoming when you finally moved.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's also a big uh, Cape Verde community in Bridgeport, where I'm from. Oh, okay. You know, so I had grown up kind of in the Cape Verde community and in a large um, African diaspora as well in Bridgeport. So I was kind of used to that. But, yeah, when I was in Boston, you know, I was really focused on... What well, from my perspective as coming up as a youth, a black youth in in the nineties and like some sort of like fame, <laughs> you know, or like making art within the paradigm of commercial capitalism, right? So I was thinking about like the music industry. I had a clothing company with uh you know, with a friend of mine, Asa Jackson, who's an incredible painter. And we were really thinking about like becoming the next bathing ape. So everything we were doing was sort of attached to this commercial success, which I think for me at that time was, was my only awareness of how to make art. I didn't really have other examples of, of artists at that point. And so when I, when I did come to Providence, actually Providence was the first place where i started to uh, encounter artists who were outside of that paradigm you know because i was encountering people who were in the academic field of art making or curating but i was also encountering people who were like in the noise music scene or who were local poets you know who were like doing amazing things in the slam in in the slam scene you know people who we're never going to be like commercially famous, and also didn't care to be, and so I think in some ways that was really the homecoming of of moving to Providence, where there became this like settling in my nervous system from this notion of like making it as an artist or being relevant as an artist is also attached to commercial success.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of. I don't know, the somatically calming influence of Providence, you're a healer and also someone who specializes in plant medicine and body work. So in what ways does holistic health inform your artistic practice as a choreographer and performance artist?
1: That's uh, something that's, that's a question that I'm also placing before myself right now, trying to... I'm trying to create some space, I think, to integrate those practices a little more. But I think that for sure, the me even coming into the space of um, dance and choreography, for me, has really been kind of like a side path from my bodywork practice. So really having developed a yoga practice when I was in Boston, kind of led me sort of back into a dance practice because I I did some dance and as a child and in high school, but I was really out of the practice. And so, yeah, just kind of like coming back into the into the field of like embodiment practices, contact improvisation, this kind of led me into the dance world. And then at a certain point in time, I became really interested in like, how do I find a somatic practice that has more ancestral relevance to me. And so that's when I started becoming interested in in African dance or just just trying to look at, okay, what are, yeah, what is Africa doing right now? What are the choreographers from Africa in Africa doing? What What is contemporary dance in Africa? Because, you know, growing up, the only African dance that I was ever given was very, you know, traditional, this is the way people have been doing it for hundreds of years, maybe thousands or millions of years sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that movement from the from the somatic practice, the healing practice into the art practice. Yeah. has really sort of like defined me as a dancer, at least.
0: So who are some of your artistic mentors or artists that may have inspired your uh, current trajectory as, an, as a dancer?
1: Yeah, so I've been really lucky to have worked alongside of a couple artists that I, that I really look up to. Um, the first in, in, the, in the dance world being Yan who uh, had been living in Providence, is now uh, teaching down at Temple in Philly. He sort of introduced me um, in his own movement practice to what his idea of a contemporary, kind of like Afro-Caribbean, Afro-American uh, movement language. And then uh, throughout the course of working with him, I became really interested in this choreographer called Nora Chiparmere who's, who's from Zimbabwe and has really been very active in the States, in Europe. She's based in Brooklyn. I met her back in 2017, and uh, was so so interested in her work, and then in uh, 2019 she called me up to join her in the studio. So I've been I've been working with her for the past few years on her on her present work called Nehanda. So we're currently we're not currently on tour, but uh, we'll be back on tour uh, in September um, doing that work.
0: How has the pandemic either? Rerouted or re- reoriented your artistic practice.
1: I think that working with Nora um, specifically, she you know she's been blessed to be uh, supported throughout the pandemic, and so we've had a number of long residencies. We did a three month residency last year and a two month residency this year with some performances along the way. So I've been able to stay in a movement practice, you know, working with her. But in terms of my own work, I haven't had any real access to spaces of movement or there was like a whole year and a half where I I, I didn't have that here in Rhode Island. And so, yeah, I really began to actually even question, like, what is performance? You know, or what, you know, what is the purpose? Like, what is the relationship between a performer and an audience? Um, And I think that with the state of what it is to be human or have a human interaction that has changed so much over the course of the past two years, right? Because everything is very heightened. Touch is heightened. Being in six feet of proximity is heightened. Knowing that we're breathing the same air is is heightened. And so I think for me, like all this is present in the act of performance or in the act of um, sharing a living art. And so I'm really investigating that. For a while, I was like, I'm not even performing anymore. I'm just making sound installations now. Um, (laughs) And I'm not sure that that that's true, but I think that I've become a lot more interested in space making because the space has to matter, right? Like we can't just go into a theater anymore and just be like, oh yeah, we're in a black box and that doesn't mean anything. You know, where are we really? What are we doing here? Why are we taking this risk to be in the same space? What is at stake? And what, you know, these are some of the questions I'm thinking about.
0: So Kai, you describe yourself as a fugitive Afrofuturist. Uh, can you unpack that for the listeners? What does that mean for you?
1: So the language around fugitivity uh, is is um, something that's that's been really inspired by uh, this incredible philosopher thinker, Bayo Komalafe, coming from Nigeria. Yeah, how he breaks down, you know, the state of fugitivity is really this this acknowledgement of you know what it means to be. Uh, living in a world that doesn't want us to know our oppression, doesn't want us to be able to meet our, our oppression, doesn't want us to know what it means to be black in this world, right? And so for me, the acknowledgement of what it is to be a black human on this planet at this time is a state of fugitivity because it acknowledges that there's actually nothing, there's no redemption available, you know, in this capitalistic white supremacist culture. So yeah, we're inherently living outside the bounds, so to speak. And so the state of fugitivity is an acknowledgement of that and a call in of like you know, who are we rolling with?
0: Yeah, when I think about fugitivity specifically, I go to Frank Wilderson and Afro-pessimism. Yeah. But that sounds a little different from what you're saying because uh, Afro-pessimism, although I theoretically sort of aligned with this idea of social death, yes. is more oppressive, if you will, or it, it leaves less for speculative future building. It leaves less for thinking about black healing, black uh, communal sort of togetherness, thinking more literally optimistically about black subjectivity throughout the global world. But as a healer, you sort of have the responsibility to Real that sort of feeling in almost so how do you <laughs> how do you negotiate those two things for people who are you know feeling all of those feelings that have to do with what you just said in terms of sort of being potentially I don't know lost in this capitalist mire but still wanting to have that human connection and wanting to be a healed full person showing up in the world
1: Yes, that's, that's a beautiful question and an important one. And I'll just also shout out uh, Frank B. Wilderson. I, I, I love his work. But, um, you know, my work in the biodynamics field, which is the type of body work that I, that I um, study and, and, and practice, and I'll shout out my teacher, Andrali Horn. You know, we work with this understanding, this knowing, that all of nature, including ourselves, is self-healing, is self-regulating, that, that we come into this world with all the resources that we need to have health, and that that health is actually what creates us. That spark of conception, that moment of conception, is an act of health. Some might call it God or creation or grace. And so that stays with us as long as we're alive. It's what being alive is. Being alive is to be in a state of health. Even if we're experiencing suffering, there's still this core health that's present. And so the the work that I do is really about trying to orient to that state of health and trying to allow that wisdom or rather give space so that that wisdom can come forth and so i think that yeah that's that's uh that's something that i carry that i'm like you said it's my responsibility i understand it to be ancestral responsibility I feel like my, my path as a healer here is something that's been given to me. And so, yeah, I feel like that, that harmony that we carry with the rest of the planet is something that's inherent, you know, within all of us. And I feel like Black people know that so well. We're joyful beings. We're joyful people. And that joy is, is healthfulness. That joy is a reflection of this earth. You know, it's a reflection of the cosmos. So, yeah, I think being inside of that is also being outside of the oppressive system. Right. So it's it's like being in joy or being in harmony with the planet is also a state of fugitivity because <laughs> the powers that be are not in harmony. You know, they're in an antagonistic relationship with the planet.
0: So take us through what a typical day a typical day looks like for you? Because just working and listening to you and having this demeanor of calmness that you have, it seems like you wouldn't be phased by anything. And I know that's <laughs> a lot of practice. So how do you start your day? Do you meditate or what, what happens when you wake up?
1: First thing I, I do when I wake up is I say thank you. That's been the most, of all the practices that I've encountered, that's, that's the most helpful practice for me. Just to say thank you for this day. Thank you for this life, this body. Thank you for all the mothers and fathers who come before me. Thank you for my child. For his mother, for her mother, her father, all the mothers and fathers before them. And that puts me on the right foot. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, you know, I do have a physical practice, uh, a yoga practice that I try to go through every morning as much as possible. You know, some days are better than others, but I try to start there. You know, I try to start with breath and movement and hydration, you know. I'm also a child of the sea. You know, I have water spirits in me. I have water ancestors. And so I try to, uh uh, bless them and, and honor them by uh, making sure I get water and juice in my system, you know, hydrating fruits. I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. You know, I really try to live a life of, of care, uh, caring for this, this being, this vessel. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, I, it's not true that I'm unfazed, but to me, it's like, that's a goal. How can I be unfazed? You know, how can I take everything as it comes? How can I respond uh, with gratitude, or at least with equanimity? <laughs> you know, to to everything. You know, because there's a lot going on, right? There's environmental pollution. There's war. There's racism. There's all this, all these things. You know, to encounter um, on a daily basis. It doesn't stop.
0: So you mentioned your dad. How has being a parent reoriented your art making?
1: You know it's amazing it's amazing being an artist parent parent artist. I think that probably the the best perk is like having really cool friends <laughs> you know um because i get to I get to bring my son around then, you know, and you know he gets to hear me talk all the time, but it's cool that. He gets to engage with other people who have skills and who have ideas and who have, yeah, really interesting and deep relationships to, um, you know, not only to whatever it is that they're making, but also to the art that they've encountered in their life, you know, to the stories and the songs and the wisdoms that have been gifted to them from their parents or their mentors and ancestors. So you know, I would say that that's really, you know, the biggest, you know, gift for me is allowing, is bringing my child into a, a circle of artists. You know, he's at that age where, like I said before, most of the things he's doing can be, could be considered artwork. You know, he's drawing all the time and playing instruments and um, is singing and dancing, you know. And so I just try to sometimes encourage him to maybe think a little more abstractly of, you know, when it comes to when it comes to art making. Sometimes it's annoying for him because, you know, like he was reading um, Things Fall Apart and I tried to like give little extracurricular assignments. So I was like, I was like, why don't you make an artistic response you know, to the end of the book? And he was like, I don't but uh you know but it's cool because i feel like he's he's getting to think about things and yeah just a little more roundabout way than just like make a summary or a book report or you know these sorts of things that that's what i was doing when i was in fourth grade
0: one of your latest works basso continuo is an experimental opera Can you talk a bit more about the project and the stage that you're in now with it?
1: So that's one of those pre-COVID projects that, (laughs) where I'm like, what is art? What, you know? Um, Yeah, basso continuo, I call it the interpolation of the narcissist and echo myth. So, you know, what I'm thinking about is what is, the narcissist and echo myth, if it's an animist story. If every if every character in this story is alive.
0: You mean like if the water were alive, if if that's what you, that's what you were saying, yeah?
1: Yes, yes, right. You know, so what happens if the pool is alive, right? Yeah. Like, you know, then then it's a very different story. And also I bought I started to think about that because, well, this was like when uh, DT was the president and, I, you know, we were living in like almost like in the bedroom of a narcissist, the entire country. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I don't think he'll hear this. So I'll just I'll just say that I, I I grew up with a narcissist father, you know, and so that that relationship to narcissism is something that I've been unpacking, you know, for for several years now and so just thinking about these devices right like even right now looking at our own image thinking about my child who who's growing up in the sense that from the time he was born he's been able to look at his own image immediately after someone capturing it whereas like when i was a kid we had to wait months you know for the (laughs) for the photos to come back from Walgreens or whatever, or, you know, years later, I might've seen a video of myself walking around as a toddler, you know, but none of, none of that information was available to me. So, you know, what does it mean to be in relationship so in such intimate relationship to our reflection? You know, what are the poisons of that, but also what is possible, right? And what is possible if in fact this portal is alive? And, and, and what happens if Narcissus actually enters the portal? You know, where do we go? You know, and I think that from, from what I've learned reading different African tales and stuff like that, that, that space of the water pool is often a portal into the underworld or into the ancestral realm. And so if Narcissus can meet his own image in the pool, just by looking at the water, if we go into the water, then we can meet our ancestors possibly and then really encounter ourselves. What does it mean to be human? You know, what does it mean to be on this side of the portal? Yeah, so that's what the work is dealing with. And what stage is it in? Is like, at this point, it's like, I just have had this project too long. <laughs> You know, yeah, I I had some really great opportunities to be in studio with it um, at AS two twenty. I was supported by Riska. I was working with two amazing artists, friends of mine. Yeah, at this point, it's like it's really um, you know could be shown next week, but it could also just be continued to be developed. So I I have sound for it. I have a basic sort of like staging for it, you know? But, you know, this is one of those projects that I'm curious about, like, what does it mean for this to exist in a different space than the like black box theater, you know?
0: And even now I can hear that your training in philosophy is coming through because this is sort of like a treatise on ego death and how that sort of gets reintegrated in performance in the form of this opera. What what makes it different than some of your other considerations, would you say? Or is it in a, a is it the same? Is it an extension of other projects you've been doing?
1: I think that, you know, the through line um, from other projects to Basso Continuo and even from Basso Continuo to some of the other work that I've been working on since then is really the sound ideas. Yeah, I'm really interested in in my own <laughs> my own uh sonic narrative, or the the sounds that my ears have been co- collecting since childhood. And so yeah, the the name Basso Continuo is really sort of describing this continuum of bass, like there there was a moment. I think it was 2017. I was walking through Queens, New York with uh, a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard this where there's a barbecue, like maybe three or four blocks away. And you don't really know like what kind of music you're hearing. All you know is that there's, you can hear the line, right? And at that point it could be reggae, it could be reggaeton, it could be, soul music, it could be hip-hop, right? But there's a continuum and there's a, there's a through line of this sort of like Africana culture that we all share, this relationship to the bass is loud. <laughs> yeah. you can, you're going to hear the bass, right? Or like if a car is passing by, you might not even hear any of the instruments in the song, but you can hear the bass clattering against the trunk. This is really interesting to me. And so, yeah, that that through line of working with bass and being interested in bass heavy music sort of comes in to the Basso Continuo idea. But I think it's really like in terms of seeing it as a a theater work, which I'm not sure if it will ever be a theater work, but Working on it as a theater work, it was really my first time in the creator seat of a, of, of a theater proposition. And so that that was, yeah, kind of a step out, you know, from where I had been as a mostly like individual performer. Yeah. Making a lot of like street art or street potential art.
0: So, last question for you, or second to last, penultimate question. What does liberation look like to you? Ooh. You gotta hit him with a banger at the end. <laughs> you know, so, yeah.
1: Ooh, what does liberation look like? Hmm. That's a good question. Because I ask for liberation for all beings, every day. And Sometimes that question comes up for me, you know, even while I'm expressing my desire for liberation, for myself and for all beings. I question what does, what can liberation look like on this planet? What can liberation look like when we're bound inside of a body? And so I think that in this moment, in this current present right now, If I were to ask for liberation, I think I would ask for an acknowledgement of the harm, the unfair and oppressive practices and institutions that have guided us into this state. And I would ask for a collective reckoning. And I would ask for uh, universal healthcare and an equal share, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know what else, you know, like, you know, I think that ultimately, like, we're a part of the earth, right? Like, we are, we are like the microbiome of the earth's gut. And in order for us to be liberated or to even know what liberation is, it's like, The earth has to have liberation, you know, every being on this planet has to have liberation. It's so hard to even fathom what that means.
0: Thank you for that answer. And lastly, can you shout out yourself? Tell us where to find you. Tell us if you have anything you'd like people to look out for in the upcoming months and years.
1: Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Um, i definitely shout out the work that I'm presently most invested in, which is um, Nehanda by Nora Chiparmere. That's gonna be coming back stateside this fall. We'll be at the Quick Center, Fairford University. We'll be in New York City. I'm not sure where yet. <laughs> oh, excuse me, we're gonna be at the Brooklyn Museum in New York City. We're going to be in Philadelphia, I believe, at the uh, University of the Arts. We're going to be all over the place. But that's, yeah, that's a monumental effort and work that I'm very proud to be a part of, also engaging in these questions of uh, liberation, fugitivity, um, healing practices. And uh, in terms of what I'm doing, you know, I would just love it if uh, people would come and and uh, you know, get some body work. <laughs> come get a massage. Come come get a cranial sacral uh, treatment, or like let's meet up at the park. You know, and like hang out in the sunshine and drink some some fresh green juice together. You know, let's get well. Let's get let's get healthy. Let's get vibrant. Yeah, that's that's what I would ask for. For all of us, including you, Anita, if you ever uh, are in Providence anytime soon, come holler at me. we will. We'll uh, we'll take a nice walk in nature and and, uh, sip some green juice.
0: Can't say no to green juice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kai. It's been a pleasure.
1: It has been a pleasure for me, Anita. Thank you.
0: This episode was sponsored by the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts and was edited by me, Alex Hainsworth. Thank you to the RISD Museum for housing this podcast on their website. And a special thank you to Brendan Campbell, Jeremy Radke, Deborah Clemens, and Sarah Gans-Blythe for additional support. Thank you also to Coma Studio for the song you can hear in the beginning and the end of this
1: podcast. Thank you for listening.